Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any investment. With that, hello, welcome to the Rangeley Capital Podcast. I'm Chris DeMuth, a portfolio manager at Rangeley. And with me, as always, is my co-host and fellow Rangeley PM, Andrew Walker. It is Wednesday, January 25th, 2017, and today we're talking Amazon as well as Snapchat. Wanted to start off with Amazon today. We, we, we've spoken about them fairly recently and fairly frequently, but there's a lot to talk about. This is my favorite company that I've never invested in, uh, and it scares competitors of all types for good reasons. Uh, as CEO Jeff Bezos likes to say, your margin is my opportunity. He probably likes to say that more than competitors like to hear it. Um, next in his <laughs> potential victims list, auto parts retailers. AutoZone, Advanced Auto Parts, and others skidded in response to reports that Amazon is moving in on their space. Amazon has been uh, getting long-term uh, contracts set up uh, with uh, Federal Mogul, some of the other uh, parts uh, companies. And as this percolates out into the press, the incumbents, uh, cushy, comfortable incumbents who've chopped up this market amongst themselves uh, look like they are getting a reaction. So question for Andrew to start off. What does Amazon see here? Yeah, so it, it, it's interesting because I feel like we talk about Amazon so much on this podcast, but we haven't had a podcast kind of focused on Amazon since July. So it's it's funny. I feel like we talk about them all the time, but this is the first time we're focusing on them in a while. Uh, you know, I think this is a natural place for Amazon to enter. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I did some – I was – oh, I'm about to sneeze. I'm going to say something. You go for it. And then... I have a little thought and then <laughs> yeah. I will parlay it back to you. Um, I, I would just say one thing that is interesting about this is that this existing industry is full of sweetheart chummy deals between yep. the suppliers and the retail distributors. They have fat margins and that attracts competition like sharks. Okay. Um, and it just makes a lot of sense to Amazon. When you listen to fat, chummy incumbents defend themselves. There's always some um, baloney that they like to say, and it's usually highly condescending to the customers. Like, well, the customers couldn't possibly understand how to buy an auto part. They need me, a commissioned salesman, to explain to them. Well, guess what's perfect for explaining and educating to customers? You need a VIN number and an explanation on Amazon and 10 seconds of your time, and you can buy an auto part. Yeah, so, whew, sorry guys, I've got a cold too, but I think you're exactly right. Look, I pulled up AutoZone's uh, financial right before the podcast they've got 50 percent plus gross margins 20 percent plus ebitda margins i mean those are really big really fat margins that you expect of someone who's got a big moat a very differentiated business model and you know it kind of surprises me that uh someone who's literally just selling auto parts would have such high margins and if i remember correctly i believe Eddie Lampert, kind of now of Sears fame, but he he real his real big win that kind of got his career going was investing in AutoZone mm -hmm. in the late '90s, early 2000s, and it just turned out to be this phenomenal business model that really compounded capital. But I think this is a natural place for Amazon Center. Look, if you think about shipping out uh, auto parts, they are high value to weight, so you ship something that you know come it fits perfectly in kind of an Amazon style box and shipping. Uh, and it costs a lot compared to how much it, it cost, how much uh, the shipping cost is. So I think it's a perfect area for them to enter. It's an easy customer experience. Um, I 
uh, recently bought an auto part on eBay. You just need to see the little number on the part. I mean, every auto part, if you look carefully, has some number on it. You just type in the number with no explanation. It popped up, cheap shipping, and easy. And uh, clearly, Amazon could hugely improve upon that customer experience. And, but there's no reason why you can't have it all online. And it works well. Like Obviously, there are emergency repairs where you need a part and you need it immediately. But if yeah. you're a do-it-yourself or just looking to upgrade your truck, your truck or your car or do general maintenance, you, know, you can have a two- or three-day lead. And Amazon shipping it directly to your house cutting out the middleman I think makes a lot of sense you know and then I think just thinking some more about this uh, look Amazon's entering more and more areas of retail mm-hmm. I think every retailer needs to be scared uh, they're coming into the auto parts a couple months ago we saw press that they're moving into the grocery store markets if you're doing anything in retail Amazon is coming for you you need to be worried uh you know and then the next step is probably and if I were the auto part suppliers I would be worried the next step is look Amazon has all the distribution now it's probably Amazon making the the parts themselves or selling an Amazon brand parts uh we've seen a lot of stuff that says Amazon's moving into the fashion world and introducing their own clothing lines and I don't see why there aren't Amazon shoes Amazon parts Amazon Amazon already sells some basic cables for electronics like I think it's a natural extension for Amazon to kind of start licensing their brand and selling Amazon-backed products. So they're already going after the retailers. Next, I think the next step is going after the stuff retailers sell. There's been a lot of auto part litigation with um, the insurers about whether they need to have identical OEM or simply comparable parts. And the insurers have just run the table on a lot of the litigation, mm-hmm. uh, allowing Amazon to then come in, even fulfilling insurer needs on uh, comparable parts they could make provide themselves. There's a lot they could do. They're just so dominant in so many areas. They're passing Macy's. This is the number one U.S. apparel retailer this year. And they can kind of try out, usually abroad, then come here with some private label. I think they could, with even less of kind of cultural friction, do private label on auto parts, especially going through insurers where you wouldn't even know. Yep. hundred percent. hundred percent agree. Um, you know, I think that I mentioned the issue about the uh, the customer. I think the, I mean, I think especially generationally as people are used to Amazon, I mean, I prefer looking at Amazon reviews, looking at one positive, one negative. The number of reviews instantly is more important than how positive they are. Uh, but, you know, going through that customer process, I prefer it than talking to a salesman who's obviously more conflicted than the average customer. Um, at the same time, we mentioned earlier, they're making a big move into ocean freight. Um, and for the first time handling direct um, much of the shipping functions that used to be handled by global freight companies. We mentioned this earlier, but they're actually kind of putting a lot of this into uh, place this year. Um, and Andrew, do you have anything you want, any thoughts on that since last we spoke about it? Yeah, so look, I think the last time we spoke about this was in March or April. We talked about Amazon, and they were moving into leasing planes for the first time. Mm-hmm. And we were saying they were kind of going after FedEx and UPS. And I think this is a natural extension. If you kind of think about Amazon's business model, it is really, hey, there are thousands of manufacturers in China or, or you know, anywhere. There's thousands of people making products. And then there are three distributors, a FedEx, a UPS, and a couple of big shipping lines who take those products. Our customers buy them from us, and these shippers take them and distribute them to a million customers or so. And I think it makes total sense for Amazon to be like, we own the customers. Why don't we just take the place of those three shippers and kind of cut out the middleman, take their margins out the equation. We get more insight into our supply line, more control of our business. And look, I think the end game for all Amazon, similar to cutting out retailers and auto parts, 
cut out the middleman. Amazon controls everything. You're the customer. Amazon controls as much of the process as getting whatever you want to you as possible. Moving in this direction makes tons of sense. They've got the data. They've got the money to invest. It, it makes all the sense in the world to me. I'm sometimes skeptical of vertical integration, but in this case, one thing I love about it is a little bit like with uh, Berkshire and the railroads. I love the informational edge, and I think that that's something that they're going to aggressively exploit. Um, And so I think that this could make a lot of sense. Now, uh, not to have to mention him every podcast, but it is facilitating smaller and mid-sized Chinese suppliers selling to the U.S. right as the administration prepares to clamp down on trade. And so I think that their positioning politically in terms of regulation is really important. One solution I thought of is they have, they have these Amazon drones they could use them to like lift their products over the wall. They could <laughs> kind of ship to Mexico and then drone them in over. Uh, but uh, do you think that that could be a problem for them? Uh, look, I mean, it could be a little bit of one, but ultimately... It- Amazon sells to customers, right? If if there's going to be some form of trade war or something, Amazon's got the customers. They've got the grip on the customers. They'll just source everything from America and prices will be higher. But I don't think it, it ultimately matters one way or the other for Amazon. I think it would be a great public policy service to separate out the pricing. Uh, uh, just last little thought on this. At one point, uh, the FCC went ballistics when the long-distance carriers tried to uh, put a separate line of cost for some of the regulatory compliance. Yeah. And they said, no, we're supposed to take your money and you're supposed to keep it a secret for us. Uh, it'd be great if Amazon could just list, here is the free open market price and here is the kind of protected uh, nationalistic price and you can pick which one and customers can uh, do either way. Uh, politically, I, I don't think think uh, that would fly under the new regime. The new regime likes good headlines. If Amazon wants to be a good uh, political steward, I don't think they would uh, mess with that. I like free markets and I like snark, so it would appeal to me. <laughs> uh, new topic, uh, if, if that's fine with Amazon for now, mm-hmm. um, I'd like to move on to Snapchat. Snapchat is IPOing. Uh, are they uh, are they in desperate need of new capital? No, but IPOs have become a rite of passage. Uh, Snapchat CEO Miranda Care fiance and world's young Youngest self-made billionaire, Avon Spiegel, is running the show today. And tomorrow, he'll still be running the show. Uh, he's prepping his company's sale uh, to go public. Uh, they've been doing some different things. They just won some litigation against someone who blames Snapchat for their car crash. Car crashes are the fault of people who crash cars, not Snapchat, says the court. Uh, they are leaning on ad agencies for huge pre-commitments, kind of $100 to $200 million tickets. Uh, typical of IPO prep. These aren't real contracts necessarily, but they help whet appetite of IPO buyers. Um, so, uh, Andrew, what are your thoughts on Snapchat and will you be participating in the IPO? Yeah, so I think it's interesting you said IPOs are a rite of passage because you know up until 2012, 2013, the IPOs were seen as a rite of passage. And then recently you've seen you know all the big tech unicorns, the billion-dollar startups – we haven't really seen any of them IPO since Facebook and probably Twitter was the last big one I can think of that really had big unicorn IPOs. So it's interesting that Snapchat is choosing now to kind of open the floodgate. And is this the first in, you know, Snapchat's going to go public, then Uber probably goes public later this year or early next year. And then after that, maybe we get a flood of these kind of new uh, unicorns coming up public. But uh, look, I-, I think you're talking about Snapchat. They're IPOing and they've set a share class where... 
you buy the shares and you don't have a vote in corporate governance matters. Uh, their founder and CEO will control the vote. He'll control the company and you'll be kind of at his whim. And it's very interesting because generally you think I buy a share of stock. I get one vote for that share. And if I buy enough shares, I can kind of influence corporate control and vote against directors if I want, vote against management if I want. Here you can't do that. So, you know, in some senses, I think that's bad. But at the same time, every unicorn that's gone public recently has had a controlled class where Facebook, Under Armour, Google, all of them came and the founders had, you know, 10 voting shares and then the uh, general public who bought shares had one voting shares. And all of them have had to come kind of hat in hand to investors and say, hey, we're going to give a lot of our stock away to charity. We want to change the voting terms for what we've done and give you less votes so we still retain control. And it creates this weird thing where they need approval from minority shareholders, even if, or from the board, even though if the board doesn't give them approval, they can just fire the board and get a new board. So I think, hey, Snapchat, I think they're doing it right. Like, why create that weird incentive system? If you're going to set your control in the beginning, just give yourself control. Don't pretend games where maybe you'll give other people control at some point. Just say, hey, I'm in control, trust me or not, whatever. I, I personally don't like that governance, but at least they're doing it for, in a long-term manner, if that makes sense. And it's intellectually honest to say you don't have a vote versus saying, hey, I've come up with this game where I have more votes than you do and I'm always going to make sure it's a certain amount. Exactly. So I think exactly. that they're, you know, I, I, I might be expected to be pro-shareholder rights in every, you know, always, uh, in every case and always. However, what I'm more for is... Uh, honesty transactionally. So a company such as Hershey, they are not shareholder maximizing. So it sounds like it's a mantra of mine, maximize shareholder value. No, in that case, the guy who owned it and started it, he put provisions to maximize other things, to provide for a school, for orphans, lovely things. And he has every right in the world to do that. So I care more about founder intent and contractual integrity than I do about shareholders, even if I'm one of the poor schmuck shareholders. It'd be almost like if you went to the Catholic Church and you were like, uh, Pope Francis, you're, you're not maximizing shareholder value here. Exactly. You're not maximizing the wealth creation of the church. Well, he's not really supposed to do that. He's kind of supposed to maximize the faith of all of the Catholic religion. It, but, it, yeah. it, very good point. You know, I think there's this nostalgic attachment to I'm one small part of this big enterprise. But guess what? If you own one share or you own a thousand shares, or you, own a, you, can, you can round your voting control down to zero. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's interesting. I always thought that there could be a separate market for votes. There's no duty for uh, minority holders uh, to vote for the interest of other minority holders. You could probably separate that out into a separate tradable market to securitize votes themselves. But um, this is an interesting character. I think that people look to Evan and they say he's a young guy he has his finger on the pulse of millennials he's accomplished things that Facebook and others haven't although Facebook's working hard to clone him and they don't want to lose that by some you know board you know if you looked at the uh, Apple coup against Steve Jobs I think that's the scenario people yeah. fear older stodgy suits taking over from the talent and ruining it um, you know I, oh I, it, but it's not just that you know I, I think I mentioned on our last podcast I was reading the the Tesla book and mm-hmm. even the Tesla book uh, Elon Musk he's one of the founders of PayPal and there's kind of a board coup and they kick Elon Musk out as CEO and they replace him with uh, I believe it's Peter Thiel who is also fantastic and it worked out well for everyone but I think one of the things Elon Musk kind of said is I'll never be in a position where I can lose control of one of my companies Mm -hmm. again so I think these guys have learned 
if you know this is your baby right now you have control of it if you ever give up control of that you can't get it back even if times are good don't give it up now just mm-hmm. make sure you've got control of it and as you said you know we've really kind of seen a small era of the last few years of some you know the cisco uh, deal that was just announced jet.com earlier where there have been a unicorn sales instead of ipos and now this one uh, is coming back um and it's coming back with somebody i was saying earlier today i really don't have that much envy i think i'm rate fairly low on envy but you, i mean you really on. Oh, you're you're probably the person lowest on envy that I know. I think, but go in, ahead. in this I, case, he challenges it. Just the yeah. whole the whole. So Evan, what are you up to this year? Marrying Miranda Care and IPOing Snapchat. Uh, you know, kind of in the same year. That's rubbing it in just a little bit. Uh, yeah. Just just a little bit. <laughs> um, I'd also like to throw out that he is one of these dropout billionaires, but I've always cringed about these lessons being taken too seriously by young people. This is an ultimate causation correlation fallacy. You know, if you want to be like him, the whole dropping out doesn't make you one tick more like him. He had great ideas and he had things to do in an immensely high opportunity cost and dropped out of Stanford. Yeah, it's the, t- it's the statistical thing, right? You see a rock star and you're like, oh my god, look at the rock star. They're so rich and famous. Mm-hmm. And you compare him to a dentist and you're like, silly dentist, but like prob- probabilistically adjusted, dentists live better than rock stars. Yes. You know, probabilistically adjusted. Now, he dropped out and I think there is something to say. If you drop out of Stanford or something because you're so passionate about an IPO, it's probably more, or so passionate about business, it's probably more likely to be a unicorn than if you stay in school or you, you start something part-time or something. But yeah, it, you're 100% correct there. Um, I'm going to just make a quick jump ahead to my disclosure, which is I have and will have nothing to disclose, I believe, about Snapchat. I am not a, a shareholder. The smart people will be selling uh, more than buying, I think. Um, I think you're less of a skeptic than I am about the IPO process. I find that this is an example that has almost the inverse characteristics of what I most love about most of the type of corporate events we think about where there's great information high incentive for it to be explained and where there's an information asymmetry it tends to be especially with tech ipos benefiting the sellers so uh, it's possible that you know i'll look at it but it, it's the kind of thing that would have an immensely high barrier uh, um and so I, that's just something well, on ipos i'm a skeptic of ip i am a skeptic of ipos after they start trading as sources of uh mispriced securities uh i think ipos if you can get in on them you know they're they're intentionally underpriced to kind of reward the bank's clients so i think if you could get in on that's it's you know you're going to get a pop that's probably a great deal uh my only thing is like this i think ipos that are almost forced because you're you're uh you're all of your employees have stock options and you're hitting the sec limits where you you are forced to ipo and go public i think those have generally done well if i think Twitter, Facebook, Google, a couple others, in general, a basket of them has done well because they're not going public because they need the money. They're going public because they're forced. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think they are a source of the type of mispriced securities we generally look for, but I do think they're better than, you know, the average company who comes to the market and says, hey, I need $50 million in capital because I don't have enough money. I need to go build something. These are, hey, we have to go public because we've just got so many shareholders. Cash them out. Our business is fine. Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? I I think it does. It's a great point. Um, I'm just going to end on one last little thought, which is philosophically, if you own something with no vote and no dividend or other distribution, what is the net present value? It really turns back to corporate events. Even if it's 100 years from now, you need ultimately to have some exit just so you can 
uh, net present value, what it ultimately will be in a form that you get. Uh, and I think that that brings uh, events back to a type of value investing. But you really better trust that the uh, the guys who control all the votes are going to treat you fairly in a deal because there are all sorts of things where somebody has you know all the super voting shares, and I believe there's protections built into the non-voting shares to give them economics and deals. But you know, if you have someone unscrupulous who owns all the vote, they can try to take all those protections out, and then you're going to go to court and you're going to see, hey, are you getting a kajillion dollars? Or are you getting zero and they're getting your kajillion dollars? So you better really trust whoever it has all the votes and all the control. And I'll leave with the last word right there for you, Andrew. Oh, thanks. Uh, uh, thank you uh, for your thoughts today. All the time we have for today, actually, we've gone a little over. Uh, before we hit our disclosures, a reminder, if you like this podcast, how could you not? Uh, please be sure to follow and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Audioboom. Uh, I have nothing to disclose. Uh, Andrew, do you? I, I'm going to disclose I had a little bit of a cold today, so sorry if I was out of it or sniffling the whole time. We'll try to do better next time. I hope you feel better by the next podcast. Thanks. Bye. Bye.